It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Matt Kelly, founder of The New European. If you like The New European podcast, you're going to love The New European newspaper. Unique content from people who love being European as much as you do. A different take on current affairs, bringing insight to untold stories from within our continent and explaining how they shape our lives. And page after page of fabulous arts and culture coverage from across Europe. It's witty, entertaining, and when it drops through your letterbox each week, it's going to remind you that a strong pro-European community is alive and well in this country we love. It's on sale at newsagents every Thursday, but make sure you don't miss a copy by subscribing. We've got a special time-limited offer just now. Go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe and you get the newspaper delivered every week anywhere in the UK for just £10 a month. And you also get full access to our e-edition. You're going to love it and you'll be supporting great journalism. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Hello Snowflakes and welcome to the New European Podcast, a British eye on European politics and culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing for just £8 a month at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. My name is Steve Anglesey. What did you think of Dominic Cummings' testimony? I was too busy saving lives to watch it myself. I was also working on my children's book about a tiny but very angry caterpillar who eats his way through the government one by one. We'll be talking Dominic Cummings with both my guests today, as well as weighing up Keir Starmer and the unions and asking what Vladimir Putin is up to in the Arctic. And as ever, we'll be checking in with Anne Widdicombe as we put more bad politicians into the Hall of Shame. But first, we asked you, dear New European podcast listeners, what you thought of Dominic Cummings' appearance in front of two Commons committees, during which he said, and I think we'll remember this for a long time, tens of thousands of people died who didn't need to die. Because Dominic Cummings has been hailed as a master of the snappy three-word slogan, take back control, get Brexit done, all of that, we asked what three-word slogan you would use to sum Dominic Cummings' appearance up. Daniel Reed said, spad the impaler. Laura Sutherland said, where's my popcorn? Connell Jones said, hold my pint. Jono said, it was Hancock. And Sarah Stackpole said, Hancock's worst nightmare. Tim Baker, Derek Rimmer, Mark Warwick all said, not me, Gov. Marilyn Elizabeth Hall said, it wasn't me. 
Jonathan Penn said, covering his back. And Victoria Townsend said, all about him. Mitsu Spagis Karais, and I hope I've uh, pronounced at least one of those names uh, correctly, said, beware of weasels. Always a wise uh, thing to do. Chris Smith said, Rishi for PM. Joan Elizabeth Ford said, enough is enough. And Matt Saunders said the three-word slogan that would sum up Dominic Cummings' appearance is, nothing will change. Well, will it? More of those later, but my first guest today is an award-winning author and commentator whose work includes the book Why the Germans Do It Better and several pieces for the New European, the latest of which is about Vladimir Putin on manoeuvres in the Arctic. John Kampfner, welcome. It's a fascinating piece about Putin in this week's print edition of the New European, but let's park one angry balding man for a moment and talk about another. What do you think are the moments from Dominic Cummings's epic appearance in front of those cabinet, uh, those uh, Commons committees that Boris Johnson will be most worried about? Well, I think it works on a number of levels. I mean, on the sort of political anorak level, um, you, me, maybe some listeners who've listened to the sort of whole thing for five hours and who's a relish in the twists and turns. There was so much to, to feed from. It was a sort of feeding frenzy of who stuck the knife into whom and who said what to whom you know, anecdotes about Carrie and her dog and, I mean, just sort of political theatre of the absurd. And we know that Johnson and his theatre are absurd and always have been. But I think when you strip away all of that, you go back into the human tragedy and don't need to labour the point, but his uh, arrogance, his incompetence, the bungling on, and and more than bungling, the, the neglect... Uh, even if it wasn't willful, of uh, care homes, the failure to provide PPE, the abject failure to lock down several days, if not a couple of weeks earlier, as other countries were doing so. That has left thousands of people who died who probably otherwise would not have done. And of course, the official inquiry, when that happens next year, that will go into that, but that will take years. And it will dreadful sadness of all of this is I think Johnson will just get away with it yes do you think there are any I mean is there any kind of line of attack fruitful line of attack for the for the opposition from this because I think we've you know we probably have recent evidence from the ballot box that people are not really interested in hindsight right now I think that's going to change gradually once the vaccine euphoria has has gone What, what should they do now Labour Yeah, I mean, on the vaccine, certainly the first three months of this year, and there's always a time lag between reality and and when it clocks with voters, both good and bad. um, There was this sort of Brexit bonus, plucky little Britain um, vaccine stuff, ordering, over-ordering. And we always forget what's happening in the global south, the fact that nobody is being given any vaccines at all because rich countries are basically hoarding them. But it was all being seen through a prism of aren't we doing well as opposed to those useless Europeans. And he obviously got some uh, benefit from that. But you're right. I mean, I think over time, the there will be not so much a reckoning, but there will be a sort of more numb and more um, sober look at what happened. But I do think that, sadly, and I say this really sadly, I do think that he will get away with it. I think that the vaccine rollout, which was by any standards spectacular, 
has allowed him, has given him that room. And then by which point everybody is so desperate to move on in their lives, not to mention politics away from COVID, that, uh, you know, he he won't suffer for it. Plus the fact that honesty was never his strong point. It doesn't seem just with Trump that voters, or at least his voters, care about it. Uh, now, let's look at your piece in, in this week's New European about Vladimir Putin. What, what is he doing in the Arctic? What's he doing up there? And why, why should we be so worried about this? Yeah, another Bond baddie. Um, Putin, uh, and I, I was um, imagining a cover. It's a great cover of uh, him uh, under, surfacing from underneath um, a big uh, ice block. But I could also imagine him in dark glasses stroking a white cat with a sort of piranha um, fish tank next to him, because that is the vision of Putin that I have. And I worked and lived in Russia for a long time. I've never been one of those that has ever thought we should ever give him the benefit of the doubt. And what's happening is that as uh, the climate emergency gathers pace, as the Arctic is suffering from a warming that is at a faster rate than the rest of the globe, so it's produced this bizarre um, consequence of an opening up of sea routes um, all, all across the north of the globe. And that is both a huge advantage for Russia. It's also a danger because it has a massive border that previously was protected by the ice. And so Russia can sort of legitimately feel a little bit threatened by it. But Putin is using it um, to move in, to build military bases, to um, uh, have missiles stationed there as a forward station, the Poseidon missile. He's been doing all kinds of military manoeuvres. I describe um, how there was a, a manoeuvre much publicised and they put it out on social media to sort of brag about it. Three submarines breaking the ice simultaneously. The issue at the moment is just how dangerous it is, but certainly there is danger there. And the, I mean, there's this enormous uh, forward polar station, which is uh, which has replaced sort of walruses and, and rare bird species, hasn't it? With with, um, with missile batteries and sort of bomber aircraft and all of this kind of stuff. Vladimir Putin's motivation really fascinates me. Is he is he just a classic saber rattler, a cold warrior, a throwback? you know, to the days when Russia was building up its military arsenal and persecuting its own people and then getting involved in the odd conflict near its borders? Or, or has he, is there something more sinister to, the, to uh, about Putin? And, you know, you, you're writing about this Poseidon 2M39 torpedo, which can inundate American coastal cities with radioactive tsunamis. None of this sounds good. You've got to think of Putin. I mean, there's a continuum in Russian history, which is this desperation always to be taken seriously as a power. It's always been that. And Russian power is synonymous with land mass, with the, simply the physical amount of land that it has. It's slightly different to, to other countries' definitions of power. And the fact that communism collapsed um, after 89 and the wall and, and 91 and the collapse of the Soviet Union... And then the country, and I was there during that time, uh, had this incredible opening up um, sort of Western liberal values. But at the same time, it sort of descended into chaos and corruption. And the uh, wasn't privatisation, it was the stealing of, of assets into the hands of some uh, very dodgy people. And the country sort of became 
uh, or at least thought it had become a joke figure patronized by world leaders. And when Putin comes along, his his big selling point, and it remains to this day to people of all generations, Russians, is I will restore our country's self-respect. And to a very large degree, he's done that. He has not done that through any sense of proselytizing Russian values. He's done that by sheer aggression around the world, by killing his enemies through poison and other forms of uh, decreed assassinations. He's done that through um, annex- annexing Crimea, through a proxy war in eastern Ukraine. And that's the way he does it. You know, I will, it's, it's sort of like a petulant teenager. I will just cause trouble until you pay attention to me. How are America and, and NATO responding to, to these threats? Well, politically, Biden is fascinating. I mean, Biden's general line as regards China, which he regards as a much greater threat mm. than Russia, and I think he's right on that. But as, re- as regards both of them, Biden's approach is this. We will cooperate where we can. So on COVID, on climate change, on other questions that might be Iran or, or non-proliferation, whatever. But we will compete and even confront where we have to. And that's basically their line. Um, it's not direct saber rattling. It's not spoiling for a fight, but it's saying, if you give us a fight, we'll, we'll take you on. Now, we'll see what happens. Interestingly, uh, Biden and Putin are going to be meeting in Geneva mm. uh, shortly after the G7 in Cornwall. He's then doing um, a quick uh, trip around various European capitals, and he will meet Putin uh, on neutral territory in Geneva on the 16th of June. Biden has called Putin a killer and was recently asked on TV, does he resolve from that? And he said, no, I still think that. Um, So the atmospherics are going to be interesting. And it's also, you know, a million miles away from Donald Trump's loving with Putin. And when Trump was was with him in Helsinki at a summit, he was basically saying, I trust Putin, this idea that he would ever interfere in American elections or democracy or try and hack our computer systems is for the birds, even though you know, his, his, all his security agencies and everybody else was providing evidence that that's what he was doing. Remarkable. And just before we let you go, I mean, what, what about a couple of home threats to, to Putin, who is 68 now, but because of his new extended term, he could go on until he's 83. And who would, you know, who would bet against him wanting to go on even longer than that? Yeah, what do we know about coronavirus in in Russia and the handling of that, and also what about support for Alexei Navalny within Russia? I mean, Putin, the sort of bareback rider, the sort of Mister Macho, who always seems to uh, take every possible opportunity to take his top off um, and sort of parade himself um, in in the vast Russian outdoors. Um, if he has his way, he's going nowhere fast. I mean, he is absolutely entrenched. He's changed the constitution, as you say, that's going to allow him to stay for a very long time till 2036. And he'll, if he needs to, he'll change it again. He's got nowhere to go because he, you know, there are so many people who have so much on him that even some sort of uh, immunity deal that he would get that he gave Boris Yeltsin wouldn't count for very much. So you have to work from the assumption that Putin will die in office. Um, There's very, very little sign of any 
meaningful opposition to him. Alexei Navalny uh, is a remarkable figure. He was incredibly brave to decide to go back to Russia straight after Christmas. Um, why he did that uh, was curious. I mean, Navalny knew that opposition leaders in exile, uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, uh, the former oligarch who's in London, and the former chess grandmaster Gary Kasparov, who's in New York, they have absolutely no political traction back home. There's a sort of sense of cowardice uh, of, of staying abroad. So Navalny said, right, I am going to face the music. I'm going to go back. I think he worked for, and he knew he would go to prison, but I think he worked from the assumption they would keep him three months or so and then find some way of just mm. trying to keep him quiet, which would allow him just to consolidate. And Putin is absolutely showing no sign of that. He's tried to kill him twice. So I I'm, I'm, think he'll be quite satisfied if Navalny sadly dies in prison and he was near it uh, recently until doctors were allowed in to see him and it is a it's an incredibly grim situation he you know the you know, if you look at social media um particularly among the young there is a big swathe of opposition but at the same time opinion polls that are generally quite reliable the, the polling companies show him to be popular it's a sort of you know, it's no surprise that Putin and Trump and people like that, Viktor Orban, um, are popular because they feed this rather childish need for for, for national self-determination and national self-respect. And they kind of, particularly if they um, uh, uh, put down any kind of dissent among the few, they can last for a very long time. So I wouldn't put any money on Putin going anywhere. And I guess, uh, and I guess COVID is, is being handled as well as Vladimir Putin tells people that he is handling it. Yeah, I mean, it's not being handled very well at all. But the, um, I mean, two things there, the domestic side of um, COVID is a disaster area. But I mean, Russian life expectancy is uh, pretty much the lowest in the industrial world, particularly yeah. among men, basically through excessive alcohol so the fact that there will have been huge amounts of excess deaths and non and not being recorded you, you certainly couldn't uh, believe the russian figures on covid but he really doesn't care about that because what are people going to do they're not going to protest at the same time through sputnik 5 they have been exporting a russian vaccine that appears uh, to be reasonably reliable i was reading only yesterday that the Italians are looking to co-produce it near Milan. So you've got this bizarre idea of the Russians playing their part in, quote, saving the world, unquote, while their own people are suffering hugely from it. And it's just another feather in Putin's cap. Incredible stuff. Thank you so much, John Kampfner. More from him uh, in a future in the print edition of The New European this week. Uh, you can read his piece about Vladimir Putin, what he's been up to in the Arctic. It's incredible. Thanks, John. Pleasure. And now before my second guest, some more of your three-word slogans to describe Dominic Cummings' testimony. Pamela Roberts says, at long last. Margaret Bowden says, the captain lied. That's a 
That's a reference to uh, a Lenny Cohen song, I think, from I'm, I'm Your Man. Uh, Silvio Siciliano says, destroy, destroy, destroy. Carol Reed and Gwen Nelson, I think, have been thinking about Dominic Cummings's appearance rather than his appearance before the committee. Carol Reed says, jumble sale chic. Gwen Nelson says, charity shop disaster. Oh, there's one from Sue Dyson along this line as well. Sociopathic slob chic. Uh, Liz Summerson says, bit bloody late. Mark Kieran says, far too late. Claire Nash Thurlow says, the horse bolted. Tom Faulkner says, buck stops there. Ed Morton says, revenge is sweet. Babette Mahuas Gray says, settling scores galore. And Nikki Routh says, scorn lovers revenge. Jordan Barry says, self-serving rat. Neil Minto says, a plea bargain? And Maria Leonard says, never vote Tory. Peter Horner says, won't change minds. Which leads us on to my second guest today. Francis Beckett is an author, biographer and contemporary historian who's written books about Labour leaders, including Clement Hadley, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. In this week's New European, he writes that it's time for the current Labour leader to think about beginning divorce proceedings with the trade unions. Francis Beckett, welcome to the podcast. Before we uh, before we talk about your piece about Labour and the unions, just your thoughts, please, on Dominic Cummings's epic appearance before those committees on Wednesday. Will it change any minds, do you think? Only if Labour handles it right. I mean, obviously, it's wonderful fun for obsessives like me and perhaps you. Um, Cummings versus Johnson is just a terrible shame somebody has to win but um, what you have it seems to me is is an awful lot of things that we already more or less knew we we knew that johnson wasn't up to this we knew that he was he was entitled and arrogant we knew he had dreadful judgment um if only because we he'd appointed dominic cummings in the first place you can't judgment can't get much worse than that so it seems to me that what Labour has got to do is is not not just to, to keep hammering home the things we we already know about these um, arrogant and entitled public school boys who are who are running our lives and wasting lives, but focus on the thousands of lives that Cummings says, and in this case, rightly were lost because the government didn't take action in time, lost because the government didn't, uh, did, didn't run its uh, PPE uh, schemes correctly, run, uh, and lost because the, the, the government's test and trace system, which it, it handed out to its friends in the private sector, never worked. Now, all of those thousands of people have names, faces, friends, family. We want to focus in on those. Because that's what will change minds. That's what will wake people up to what this government's really like. It's in my mind at the moment, Steve, because yesterday I attended the uh, a celebration of the life of an old friend, old, old journalist friend of mine, who was one of those who died because the government didn't act. He died in that short period, um, March to April last year, when the government should have been acting. And as Cummings has shown us, but we knew already didn't act. Uh, he, he was called Mike Pentelo. He was 73. He had a lot to live for. And I think everybody there yesterday was filled with a sense of anger at, a government because, at the government because we knew 
that if Mike had had available to him the information that Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings had available to them, he would not have been living the normal life that he was in. He would not have been going to the pub each night as he as he enjoyed doing. He would have been careful because he had a lot to live for. It's those human beings that I hope Labour is going to be focus on, focusing on. And if they do that, then they will focus on the appalling nature of the government. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry for your loss, Francis. And uh, and I, I do think that whatever one thinks of uh, of Dominic Cummings, um, uh, and I think people who listen to this podcast have probably got a very low opinion of Dominic Cummings. But I do think the phrase uh, "tens of thousands of people uh, died who did not uh, need to die" will will resonate um, for for many years to come. Uh, it will certainly outlive this uh, this um, spot of vaccine euphoria that we uh, that we rightly have now. I think. Um, turning I'm to your sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure it will, but those people need to have names and faces yes. and lives. We need to be shown what they were. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Um, turning to your piece in this week's print edition of, of the New European. You are making the, the case that Labour should consider or should just get on with extricating itself from the unions. For listeners who are unfamiliar with how closely Labour have always been bound up with the unions, just, just remind people about the Labour how the Labour Party began in the first place and, and what the country Labour and the country's relationship with the unions was before Mrs Thatcher came in and changed everything. It was unlike any other social democratic party in that it grew out of the unions. It was the unions that made the Labour Party in 1900 in order to have an independent voice in Parliament. The trade unions formed something called the Labour Representation Committee. And right up to 1918, when there were several Labour MPs and there, were, there was a Labour parliamentary party, and yet it still was not possible for an individual to join something called the Labour Party. You could only join an affiliated trade union or an affiliated socialist organisation. Now, gradually, gradually, the link became, over the next over the next hundred years or so, the link became slightly less strong. Um, it really, really by degrees in the 1930s, the the, the trade union domination of the uh, of the Labour Party conference was slightly reduced um, in the. Uh, in the 1960s, and then again in the Blair years, it was it was reduced yet further. But throughout, really, the Labour Party's life, the trade unions treated it as a kind of errant younger brother. Um, Labour um, the, the, the Labour MPs were a bit like journalists to them. They had they had their occasional uses, but the real business of the working class was done in trade union offices. Uh, trade unions formed a Praetorian Guard round the first post-war war Labour leaders, Clement Attlee and Hugh Gateskull, and to a lesser extent, Harold Wilson. And it was trade unions that, that in the end, were, were creating industrial policy towards the end of the Wilson-Callaghan years, toward, towards 1979. But since it's since then that that link has become toxic for both sides. And the reason I think is because union members have grown increasingly um, impatient with their uh, subscriptions being used for what they see as internal Labour Party politicking, internal, uh, internal political matters. And because union leaders have become 
rather less adept than once they were at at managing the way they intervened in politics. The, the early union leaders, um, Ernest Bevin in the 30s and 40s, Jack Jones in the 60s and 70s, um, were tremendously sophisticated operators. And that's all changed. The, the, the difference between Jack Jones from the 70s and Len McCluskey now is, is, is appalling to contemplate. And, uh, and, and the, the, the relationship, I think, has become toxic for both sides. The unions, of course, as we know, have been really in free fall ever since 1979, not, not just in the Thatcher years, but in the Blair years as well, mm. because um, Blair, for the, Blair was the first ever Labour leader who didn't really like the unions and didn't really get on with them and didn't really understand them and didn't really want them around. John Monks, who was the General Secretary of the Trades Union Congress at the time, said that when the unions went to see Tony Blair, um, they were treated as embarrassing elderly relatives at a family gathering. That's a wonderful phrase. John Monks was a wonderful phrase maker. But, but that's, that's how Tony Blair felt. But Tony Blair wasn't able, to, uh, wasn't able to remove himself from them. It didn't, doesn't really matter whether the unions were holding the Labour Party towards the right, as it was doing in the 1940s, 50s, early 60s, or towards the left, as it's been doing much more recently. Either way, the influence of the unions is seen now as toxic in the Labour Party, and the influence of Labour Party politics is seen as toxic in the unions. And so my case now is that for the sake of both of them, and for the sake of getting rid of the uh, of the increasingly appalling nature of the Conservative Party, there needs to be a divorce. The unions need to remove their representatives from the Labour Party National Executive to stop affiliating to the Labour Party. That doesn't, by the way, stop them giving it money if they happen to think that the Labour Party's policies are, are, are beneficial to their members. Doesn't stop. Doesn't stop them doing that at all. It just means that they shouldn't any longer have have direct policy-making powers. They, they, should, they should give money, as, as anybody gives money, to a political party that they think is acting in their interests or acting in the interests of their members. But, but, but there is no longer any case at all, it seems to me, for the, for the stranglehold that each side has over the other. Well, let's, I mean, let's talk about those two things for a minute. The, the money, first of all, the money... would. Wouldn't it be financially disastrous for for Labour if the if the unions pulled out? And then, and then, secondly, the influence. What what is the kind of the what what is the influence on the party today for people who are unfamiliar with the ins and outs in terms of rep- representation on the NEC at conference, those kind of things. Well, take those two questions. The firstly on the money. Um, actually, Labour is much less financially dependent upon the unions than, than most people imagine. Um, it's only about less than a third of the trade unions in Britain um, who are affiliated to the Labour Party, and a large number of unions not only are not affiliated but never will be. For example, the National Union of Journalists, our union, with the, the, that that is not affiliated and never will be because. Um, because journalists would not want to join a union that was that was politically affiliated. Um, so the, the, uh, the amount that 
the, Labour, the, the proportion that the Labour Party gets from affiliated trade unions is actually quite small. It's about 10% of its income. However, it's still sizable, but there will be nothing whatsoever to stop the unions continuing to fund the Labour Party if it felt like doing so. And some unions, of course, that aren't affiliated and never will be, might feel that it could donate to the Labour Party under certain circumstances if, if it didn't also require affiliation. So that's the, that's the point about the money, that hmm. actually it, most people think, you know, the cut the Labour Party would go bankrupt. No, you know, it's not necessarily so. It's um, the, the Labour Party, the, the lion's share of the Labour Party's money, money comes from membership. And there'd be nothing to stop the unions contributing some money anyway. Um, now, Steve, what was your other question well, then? But for, but for that, you're saying they get a, a, a remarkable amount of influence on the, on the, the NEC at conference, those kind of things. What, does, yes, what do they get for that money? Well, yes, the, the influence they get. They have, there are 13 reserved seats on the national executive for, for trade union representatives. It's not a majority, but it, obviously it's enough to swing a lot of votes. Mm-hmm. They get, the, they get the, 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 the block vote at conference. They get votes on, uh, on elections for the Labour Party leader and deputy leader. So they're, still, they're not as powerful as they used to be in the Labour Party, but that's still a position of power. I, Sorry, go on, Francis. My, my, view, my view of it is that, um, is that you don't have, there doesn't have to be a quid pro quo, a direct quid pro quo, a direct relationship between money and votes. And I think that's, and that's actually implicitly recognised already because Len McCluskey, over the, last, uh, over the last year, during Starmer's leadership, Keir Starmer's leadership, has reduced the Unite affiliation by 10%. Now, he's done that not because uh, he, he, he feels less committed to the Labour Party, but as a, as a direct, almost as a punishment for some of Starmer's statements and positions that he doesn't agree with. Now, that's the sort of... That's, in a sense, that's the sort of relationship that the unions ought to have with the Labour Party. That is to say, they give money. I don't necessarily say I agree with what McCluskey is doing, but in principle, the idea that you give money insofar as you approve of what the party is doing and you think it's in in the interests of your members, and you withhold money if you think it's not in the interests of your members, that's the sort of relationship that we ought to have. You don't need to add to that the direct relationship of an input into policy making uh, of... Um, seats on the national executive and all the rest of it how uh, i mean how what chances are there of this coming becoming a a reality because obviously i can see that there would be some people on the right of the labor party i mean you mentioned previous leader of the labor party tony blair i I would imagine would be quite keen on on something like this happening maybe even the current leader of the labor party wouldn't be too heartbroken to to see this happening but it does require you know, a, a two-thirds majority at conference, I think, and it does. Re- therefore, it does require the left of the party and kind of the unions to to agree. Do you, is this, is this points, a tight dream or or something that w- might come to pass? I think it, I, I, the first thing to say is that it will not come to pass unless some of the unions are also convinced that it's mm-hmm. right, which is why it's uh, 
it, it's actually quite significant that there are so many elections for big union for, for, for the chiefs of big unions recently. There are not so very long ago, Christina McAnee was elected as the general secretary of Unison. Um, at the moment, as we as we speak, both Unite and the GMB are in the process of electing new general secretaries. And increasingly, the candidates for these jobs are saying, look, um, we, we, we think that the union has gone overboard in getting involved with Labour Party politics. We think we have to draw back a little bit. And in particular, Gary Smith, who is the front runner to, to lead the GMB, is saying this particularly strongly. Now, in those circumstances, the time could come when the unions themselves are, because I'm, I'm talking about something that I, I believe is not just in the interest of the Labour Party, but massively in the interests of the trade unions themselves. I speak as a, an active trade unionist for many years, all of my life. I was president of my own union, the National Union of Journalists. I, I've, I've been involved with trade unions. I've advised them. I've edited their magazines. I've been involved with them all my life, and I've watched in, 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 in recent years as, as they've gone into free fall, um, really, since, really since 1979. 1979, they had 13 million members. There are now about 6.5 million trade union members in the country. The union's influence and their membership has gone into free fall in my lifetime, and I think that is partly due to the Labour Party link, and it will be, the, the unions will benefit massively. So what I... I so the answer to your question is that it is the case, I think, that unless there is at least significant union support for the idea, it would never get through a Labour Party conference, whereas you rightly say it needs a two-thirds majority. But I think the time is coming when, when union leaders are starting to see that the free fall, the, the desperate situation that their own organisations are in, never mind the Labour Party, that their own organisations are in, can only be, can, can only, can only be improved by, by breaking the link. Steve, I want to take up one other point that you just made about, you, you were saying, well, the, 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 the right of the Labour Party might support it. This isn't either a left-wing idea or a right-wing idea. Mm. It happens at the moment that the left is more the, the left is keener on the union link than the right simply because the, uh, the, the the mainly unite but one or two other unions as well, as well tended to support Corbyn rather than Starmer the union's influence tended to be on the left and therefore um, therefore the left suddenly became terribly keen on the union uh, on union influence over the last two or three decades, really. Um, and the right became very sceptical. Now, it was exactly the reverse in the 50s and the 60s, because the left was saying, you know, these reactionary, reactionary trade union leaders holding us back from, from bringing forward full socialism because the unions were forming a Praetorian guard around Atlee and around Gateskill um, and, uh, and were were protecting them, if you like, against against the Bevanites, who were the the, the left of the time. Um, Clem Attlee once said that those who complain most about union influence tend to fall suspiciously silent when union influence is cast in their direction. So my point to you is, look, this is neither left wing or nor right wing. It happens to have uh, it, it, it happens that just at the moment the right would support it more than the left, but that's just because of what the 
what the unions have been delivering in very recent years. If for um, if, if if the if Unison and Unite and the GMB were to fundamentally change direction and be ferociously attacking the left as some of their predecessors were in the fifties and sixties, suddenly. You would see the whole. You would see the whole thing. Yeah, suddenly, the right would discover how appalling union influence was, and the left would discover how. Um, uh, sorry, the left would discover how appalling yeah. influence was, and the right would suddenly be in favour of it. <laughs> it is. Uh, it, it's such a, an interesting piece as as, all, as your pieces for us always are, and I, I do wonder whether this will be part of the realignment of politics that we uh, that, that we see over the the next decade or so um francis in your career you've written you know books about atley you've written about blair you've written about brown uh jeremy corbyn obviously let me let me end by just asking you about keir starmer obviously I, i'm not going to ask you how he rates in a top trump's contest against those people but do you think people have made their minds up about Keir Starmer now, or is there time for Keir Starmer to to change their minds? Super Thursday was a, a a personal disaster for him. He seems to be struggling to define both what his party believes in and also how to handle a, a prime minister who's kind of seems to have learned how to play him in the in the in the Commons. Do you think? Do you, do you think what, what's the future for Keir Starmer? Do you think? Well, I, I think he will certainly lead Labour into the next general election, and I think there's perfectly reasonable hope that he will he will win it. Um, the, the, the the last by election was, uh, I mean, had had it been held, uh, say six months previously, the result would have been very different. I think the, I think it really was very largely the you know the, the vaccine bounce. Um, people felt better and. If people feel better, they vote for the governing party. Um, that's always been the case. Um, and, and politicians have always made use of it. Right back to the first time I can remember was, was Harold Wilson calling the 1966 general election on the basis of a World Cup victory. Um, and, of course, it, it, it paid off. So when, when, when people are feeling good, they tend to vote for the governing party. And that's, that, that's what happened. Now, Starmer himself, I don't know. I I looked at Starmer at the beginning, and you may remember I um, I interviewed him for the New European, and he uh, he struck me then as somebody who could become a Clem Attlee figure. That is a, a genuine, a quiet, a quiet but thoroughly revolutionary character who could who could not only get elected but change the world when he was elected. I haven't changed that view. But I accept that it, we, we can't be certain of it. We can't be certain what kind of character what kind of character he is. I'm not sure I agree with you that Boris Johnson has learned how to play him. I think what's happened is that um, people have been more more prepared to listen to what is obviously bluff and bluster than than they used to be. I I, I don't. People have been saying Keir Starmer must change entirely. I don't necessarily think that. I think he's just in it for the long haul. The next election won't be before 2024, I don't think. I don't see any earthly reason why uh, why the government would want, to, would want to rush that. And even if they did, I don't see any reason why necessarily the opposition would support it. And under the Parliament Act, of course, they can't just 
they can't just go for an election as they as they could have done once. So I don't I don't think I'm as gloomy about it as you're suggesting. I think that um, we could very we could very well see. Uh, depends what people are looking for. If they're looking as they were in 1945 for somebody quiet and competent who was going to fundamentally change the world, then they might very well look at Keir Starmer and say, yes, you're the chap. You can do that. A little bit of hope to end on. Thank you so much, Francis Beckett. Thank you, Steve. Hi, this is Sophia de Broek. I write every week in the New European on the music scene across Europe and the UK. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing for just £8 per month at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Thanks to Francis Beckett. You can read his piece about Labour and the unions in the current edition of The New European. It's in shops now for £3. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European, do join us by subscribing for just £8 a month at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Now, the Hall of Shame. It's our new home for rubbish ministers, political blather and things that annoy me generally. Tom Harwood, the right-wing journalist who's going to be a presenter on the new GB News channel, he's in the Hall of Shame. He's furious about Eurovision and he tweeted after we got null point. He tweeted, without the UK, half these countries would not be free to perform in any song contest. Arguably, the other half wouldn't. Their thanks is nil points. Well, it's not. It's nil point is the thing, uh, Tom. But there you go. I, I, I do think Tom's got a good point here, though. And instead of having a, a contest involving songs every year, why don't we just have no songs and just give the prize every year to the country who did the best in World War II, which would mean, obviously, that every year Eurovision would be won by America. Uh, Tom's Twitter bio, the little thing that describes him on his, his Twitter account, it says, you will agree w- with me on some things and disagree on others. Tom, I'm still waiting for the first bit to come true, but a good try. Now, alack, egad, harumph, it's Anne Widdicombe Corner. And this is the time when we read out bonkers bits from Anne Widdicombe's bonkers column in the Daily Express, which also itself is bonkers. And this week Anne write, writes, a three-year wait to see the dentist the average NHS patients in this country could be forgiven for thinking the way to quicker treatment might be to be in prison or in parts of the third world. And that patient wouldn't be very far wrong. Well, isn't that typical of Anne Widdicombe and people of Anne Widdicombe's ilk? An eye-catching claim for which there is precisely zero evidence. So here's what we're going to do. Let's put Anne Widdicombe in prison. Or let's send her to parts of the third world and we'll See what kind of dental care she receives. I would watch a a, a 24-part documentary series about that. But foremost in the Hall of Shame this week is Liz Truss. We have talked about this before, but the Trade Secretary is ready to complete an agreement with the Australians that's going to phase out tariffs on beef and lamb exports over 15 years. That is going to leave UK farms at a risk of being undercut by Australia's massive cattle and sheep stations, where concerns about standards and welfare and all that sort of guff come second to sheer scale. It's like the call that a knife scene in Crocodile Dundee all over again, but with added hormone injections. It's all a particular embarrassment for the Environment Secretary, George Eustace, His face appeared on a vote leave leaflet during the referendum and it was headlined, farmers will be better off if we leave the EU. Now, to give George Eustace his due, though, he might have meant Australian farmers. 
This trust recently told Andrew Marr she was unconcerned that the benefits of the trade agreement with Australia were going to be five times bigger for the Aussies than for us. And now in a piece for The Sun, she says that the deal is a win-win-win. And she wrote, British farmers have absolutely nothing to fear from this deal at all. But that fearlessness doesn't seem to be shared by the farmers themselves. We've got the NFU president, Minette Batters. She says the deal will jeopardise our own farming industry. It will cause the demise of many, many beef and sheep farms throughout the UK. Neil Shan from the UK's National uh, Beef Association says the deal is scary. And Phil Stocker from the National Sheep Association says if the deal goes through as reported, it will really show our minister's true colours. Not so much win-win-win then, Liz as grim, grim, grim. For the 58% of farmers who voted leave in the referendum, this is a particularly bitter case of reaping what you sow. Well, that was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to my guests and thank you to you again for listening. Please remember to rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Positive reviews mean a lot to us and they certainly boost my ego too. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing for just £8 a month at the neweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow the New European on Twitter at the New European. And you can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Until next week, play your bagpipes, Mr Campbell. Here you go. Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.
This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.